Lit Service is brought to you by Ringhouse. Writers Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and if I could own a pet in a fantasy world, it would be a pygmy puff. Now don't call me basic, because we were all jealous when Ginny got hers. I'm Cameron, and I have a super surprising answer for that, in that I would go with a giant bat. Wow, thrilling. <laughs> so unexpected. I'm Kristen, and if I had a fantasy pet, I would probably have a trained hawk of some form that could hunt things down for me. I'm Caitlin, and I would obviously have a dragon. I mean, why did nobody say dragon? I'm Livia, and I would have a teleporting dragon, because I'm always late to places. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually really clever. Level up. Okay. <laughs> so this week, we have Livia Blackburn joining us, a neuroscientist turned New York Times bestselling author of the Midnight Thief series and the Rosemark series. Tell us about your books, Livia. Thank you so much for having me. So yeah, my books tend to be fantasy. I have one called Midnight Thief about a young thief who kind of gets a mysterious job and gets in over her head. And then I have a book called Rosemarch, which is about a terminally ill healer and a warrior who teamed up together to take down a foreign army. Ooh, interesting. Can I hear, hear like the conflict just in those elevator pitches? Yeah, yeah they're awesome. Today, Today we have a fantastic question we're discussing. The big question is beta readers and what to do with them. So what is a beta reader? So a beta reader is someone who's critiquing your semi-polished work, but who is not being paid to critique your semi-polished work. <laughs> they are super important to any writer who is serious about writing. So you need lots and lots of feedback, and so you'll have lots of beta readers. What makes a beta reader different than like your weekly writing group? So your weekly writing group tends, at least for us anyway, tends to see stuff while the ending is still being composed. I wouldn't say that what we show each other is polished because the purpose of your writing group is to polish those pieces. So usually a beta reader is somebody that you're going to see after you have a completed manuscript um, or most of a completed manuscript to make sure that things make sense when they're read in one sitting rather than small sections each week, which is what we do. Uh, yeah, that's actually, that, that's how I see it too. So my alpha readers would be my writing group and I just kind of toss anything at them that I want to. And then beta readers would give me kind of whole novel feedback. I kind of feel like my alpha readers kind of assume that I am a bad writer. <laughs> so that's a pretty good sum up definition right there of a beta reader then. So knowing that, how do we best utilize our beta readers? And how do beta readers fit into your personal writing process? So, so I tend to use a lot of beta readers. I know some writers don't like to have a lot of voices in their head, but I find it useful because even if I don't follow their advice, what they say kind of gives me ideas about ways to solve problems, like even if I don't agree with the specific suggestions that they're giving. As I mentioned, I have my alpha reader, my writing group, about five writers, and they see chapters, you know, one at a time. And then beta readers, I'll use up to from 10 to 20 beta readers. And those are usually not writers. So for my 
first books, before I was published, I used just friends. And then after that, I got book bloggers who liked my previous book. Yeah, I usually you know, just ask them and then give them a signed book when it comes out. I think that something that you said really speaks to me is that you listen to their suggestions, but it's you don't always... Like, it's good at identifying problems, but not usually giving you the correct solutions. I think that that's very true. I think that it's really important to me, as far as beta readers go, to make sure that I have people who love the genre I'm writing. Like, it sounds like you use people who already like the kind of book that you write, so that you don't get feedback that's like, I hate the entire premise of this book, or I don't like this book going so slow if you write slow books, or I don't like how fast this book is and that it's not developed if you write really fast, I mean quickly paced books, or like it's really important to have some beta beta readers at least who enjoy what you're writing. Yes, that yeah, that's very true, and actually that's one of the questions I ask my beta readers is what do you usually read for fun, and uh, what are some books that you really like? And also, as you mentioned, it's really important to have people who you know, at least generally enjoy your writing because if they don't connect at all, then, you know, it's hard for them to give you good advice. You, you, you want to hit a middle ground. You don't want someone who loves you so much that everything you write is just, you know, gold to them, but you don't want someone who just hates it too. You want someone in the middle. Yeah, someone who never, who was never going to pick your book up in the first place isn't going to give the most useful feedback. So if you start getting feedback about big issue stuff, maybe that's a good red flag that this beta reader really isn't a match. Because I think, I think it's very important to distinguish between alpha readers and beta readers. We've talked about how alpha readers, they tackle the main stuff and then beta readers get a polished version. And ideally, these should be separate people. You want to gather as many perspectives for your manuscript as you can. And alpha readers, they've hopefully reread your manuscript or kind of dug into it enough that they're to the point where they're kind of like you. There are some problems they just won't see. So it's really good to get more fresh eyes on. I feel like when I'm in beta reader stage, that's where I have people pick up problems that I don't have like the capacity to see myself. So I try to have like different kinds of readers. So I'll have people who like grew up in different parts of the country. I'll have boys and girls. I'll have people with, from different socioeconomic backgrounds and stuff so that I don't like so that they'll pick up on issues that I don't necessarily see. Um, if you have issues in your book that you definitely aren't going to be able to see them, you need a probably paid reader who is who knows how to look for those problems. But from a beta perspective, it's nice to have some diversity so that you don't get the same feedback. Just in terms of um, the expertise, too, it's kind of related to what Caitlin was saying, where you know you might have someone who's... Uh, I, I had someone who was in the military comment on my fight scenes or else um, sensitivity readers are completely, you know, are another category of beta readers if you're writing Mm -hmm. in a different cultural context or a different uh, realm of experience. Um, Those are really helpful. So once you find good beta readers then and you have a good amount of diversity in your beta reading group, how do you filter through beta feedback without A, being overwhelmed or B, losing what you wanted your story to be? One thing that I've found really helpful is when I present a manuscript to a beta reader, I usually have something in mind that I want them to pay attention to or to keep an eye out for just so that way they're going in with a specific goal, I guess, that they're trying to read for. And usually while they're looking for that, they'll find something else that I didn't know to look for. But it's helpful to, I guess, tackle it from a kind of strategic standpoint, which is have different readers read for different things. At least for me, that works. I feel like if you're working with readers and not writers, it's helpful to give them some of those 
like it's it's helpful to give them something specific to look for. But I also find like even if I want a general sort of like how do you feel about this book, I still give parameters. I'm like, I want to know what you liked, what you didn't like, what confused you, and what like didn't work for you. I ask those questions, and I also go more specific. Like for example, how do you feel about the uh, the romance arc? How do you feel about the plot twist at this point? Did you figure it out? Um, how do you feel about how it ended? Um, how do you feel about um, the development of the friendship between these people? Well, that's usually, um, I do that after I get their spontaneous reactions. So coming from an experimental science background, I'm very much about, you know, not biasing the, the subject at first. So I'll get their spontaneous reaction, and then I go in and ask specific questions. And as far as what to, um, you know, what feedback to take, you know, there's some feedback where you hear it and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a great point. So, of course, you take those. And then other than that, I would say take the ones, if a lot of readers agree about something, then you want to at least give it serious consideration, even if you don't agree. And, And also, as we've talked about earlier, we don't necessarily have to take their suggestions, but, you know, what they bring up might be indicative of a problem that you might solve a different way. I think it's important, too, when getting feedback, if if a beta reader has an issue with something in your manuscript, to distinguish between whether their issue is with the concept itself or just the execution, because one of those is a lot easier to change than the other. And so I love what, Livia, what you said about getting their spontaneous reactions first and then kind of asking those clarifying questions so you can pin it down and, and make your job easier. On a practical level, it helps a lot if you kind of nudge your beta readers, if you send them like periodic reminders that they're still supposed to be beta reading for you. Because otherwise, I find that a lot of my friends, they send out manuscripts and they just kind of disappear into the ether. One way that I found to kind of not get that was, you know, I do rounds of beta readers, you know, let them know, say in the first week, all I want to do, I want to do, um, start it in the first week and that's your entire commitment. You know, if you take a whole month like if at the end of the the month, you know, you still haven't finished it, then that's, you know, that's on me. That's my fault for not writing a good enough story. But, you know, start the first week and at the end of the month, report back to me. And then usually I'll send kind of friendly updates at like two weeks, three weeks, four weeks to say like, hey, you know, how's it going? You know, my writing's going well. Uh, and, and these are usually group emails too, to all my betas. So it's not like I'm, I'm just like bugging one person. Maybe I'll say, oh, I'm getting early feedback already, and here's an interesting tidbit, you know, just to make sure you're still on people's radars and they don't, just don't forget about you. That's really smart. That's really good. That's a good way to handle it. I Sometimes I'm like, I need it by this day. <laughs> Maybe not a very soft way to do it. That brings us to the next point we wanted to discuss, which is how to be a good beta reader. Because I think, Caitlin, you were saying that beta reading is, it goes two ways. Everyone's always looking for a good beta reader. So how do we make ourselves that good beta reader that everyone always wants? I actually wanted to say that Livia read something for me a while back and did such a good job. And so, I, I mean, if you have writers who are are reading for you, then you have like a different level of thought that goes into it. And so the way Livia did it, she set it up like an edit letter. So she commented on all of the characters and the character arcs and the plot arc and this, and it was amazing and wonderful. So if you want to talk about that at all, that would be great, Livia. So some of those tricks I kind of borrowed from my own beta readers. Like I had one beta who after every chapter, she just wrote her reaction and I enjoyed reading those a lot. I found that that was really helpful. So I started doing that and just working with editors, seeing how they structure their letter, um, the world building and plot and and also sections kind of reflecting on every character. I found this helpful. One more thing is uh, 
on a very practical level. Uh, I got Microsoft Word on my iPhone. I think I have to pay for it, but that's kind of like changed my life as far as like being a prompt beta reader because then I just carry it around wherever I go and it's just so much easier and I can comment directly on the document and I don't have to find the time to sit down at my computer. Yay software. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> That's a great suggestion. I'll have to try that myself because I'm not always very prompt. So we're actually oh, wait, out of time. One more thing. Kristen had something that I thought was really important. So Yeah, I was just thinking about reciprocity, that the golden rule really applies here. Like if you are being a beta reader, the most important thing is to do what you would want to receive. So specific comments with specific explanations are always helpful. But I also think it's really important to mark the things that you love about what you're reading because it can be kind of exhausting to get a lot of feedback, even if it's constructive. And it's really helpful to also have positive things to share about the way a story is constructed or something you really, really loved. I think it's really, really helpful also if you couch your comments as questions. Like if, if you think something is not working and you put your comment as this is the worst and I don't understand it or I don't like this. That's way different than asking, oh, did this happen this way? Question mark. And like, you know, it, it's a lot less harsh sounding if you, if when you have questions, you couch them as questions and not as like harsh. I don't like this. If that makes sense. Well, on the first one, you know, just a blanket, I don't like this on its own is profoundly unhelpful. Yes. Because <laughs> it doesn't, what, well, what about this don't you like? It's, it's hard to find something to fix if you just, you know, don't give any detail beyond your absolute baseline emotional reaction. Well, and another thing, I think if you're a beginning writer who's just learning to beta and you're beta-ing for other newer writers because people tend to to like their their writing circle tends to be about the same level professionally that they are. At the beginning, when I first started reading for other people, as I was reading in my mind, I always had this, how would I write this thought? And that is so unhelpful as a beta reader. It is so unhelpful to like rewrite it in your head because all of your comments will be couched around, well, if you do this, then you will also do this, and then you'll also do this, and now, now this is my book. Whereas if you give feedback that is just reactions... I feel like that's significantly more helpful. We talk about that a lot here on the podcast because we talk about not giving prescriptive feedback, which depending mm -hmm. on who is giving you feedback, sometimes prescriptive feedback can be very, very helpful if it's a professional. But like if you are still learning to write and you are still learning how to be a good reader, reactions are a lot more helpful because they show where problems are rather than trying to give solutions. Amen. Those are super, super important points. One other important point that we should cover real fast. Does someone want to answer in 15 seconds some good resources for people trying to find beta readers? Sure. One that I really like is the Critique Partner Matchup. It's a big Google group that Maggie Stiefvater put together that's organized by genre and by subject and age group. On the site, she tells you what to do. So Critique Partner Matchup, just look it up. There's also, we have a writing group like exchange on our website that you mm -hmm. can go try to use. And then also NaNoWriMo has like location-based groups there's facebook groups mm -hmm. yeah. writing conferences if you can go and meet people yeah those are actually the best because if you can meet somebody face to face and then you do like an initial 10 page critique to see if your writing styles mesh or even if you're good critique partners for each other like that's a really good place to start so now we get to move on to another really exciting portion of the podcast where we get to um, review and critique um, an audience submission 
So quick review, we try to keep this non-prescriptive, which basically, like Caitlin said, means we talk about our reactions rather than how we would fix it. But if you'd like to check out the text of this submission and see all of our notes, check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So a quick summary of this submission. A young ranger has just come out of a failed partnership and is looking to find a new partner. And there's also a cool elf creation myth. <laughs> yeah, so they're also all elves. Yes, they're all elves. And there's magic. So what are some things that we like? There's a really nice part on page two where Direa, I don't know how you actually say her name, the main character, is leaning against a tree and getting kind of a sense of it. And it does a really good job of hinting to us what a Magi's gift is without outright stating it. So I think it does a really good job iceberging, um, and it tells us a lot about who the main character is. So I thought it did a good job as a line that pulls pulls its weight twice. I really liked that, too. One line I thought also did an excellent job of telling us a little bit about her um, is the fact that she doesn't hang up her uniform anymore. It said she hung it up all nice and spiffy at first, and now she just she doesn't hang it up anymore. So generally speaking, if I see the word elf, in any kind of writing that gets an immediate eye roll just because of how used the trope is. But I think it really works here because, at least partly because it's shown from within the culture's perspective and there's like, there hasn't been any mention of anyone else. So I think it, anyway, I like it. Yeah, I enjoyed the um, the world building as well. And the writers clearly put a lot of thought into this. And, you know, in general, you have good tension at the beginning. The female ranger trying to prove herself in a male-dominated world, you know, it's someone to root for. Yeah, we get, we get what she wants and what's standing in her way really quick. And there's some nice hints about her past, too. I liked I liked the line where it says, should she quit being a ranger and follow her sisters into the domestic life, they might speak to her again if she did. I thought that was some nice hinting. I also really like the preview we get of her gift, because she mentions that no gift, or gifts aren't all alike. And um, we have a moment where she leans back and like kind of melts her mind with this tree. I don't know what the proper term for it is, but as she does it, there's some really beautiful imagery, but then also she says that the tree grew strong because storms, and that it was also a metaphor for her because her magic was telling her that she needed to grow strong in the storm rather than falling over. That was nice. What are some things that might need a second look then? So I will say that, like echoing a lot of what we said earlier, there's a lot of really great description throughout. However, there's also a lot of places where it's noticeably missing. There's a lot of times where we switch scenes, where I don't know that we switch scenes until all of a sudden something happens. or like, oh, okay, a couple paragraphs later, I guess we're in a different place now. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of places where establishing details are missing. Yeah, there's some interesting time jumps where there's no line break, and then I don't know where we are, but we're somewhere else, so there's no grounding detail. One of the, one of the ones that stands out is that after she goes back to, I guess, the, 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 the precinct office equivalent after the, the partnership blows up that we get in the beginning of the submission, there is a fabulous description of what this place looked like as she's leaving, but because we get it when she's leaving for that whole scene, I don't know where she is. I think my biggest issue with this is that I felt like it probably starts in the wrong place. Well, I'm going to explain why, and then you can take it or leave it. We open in the aftermath of like a really, really emotional argument, but we don't have enough information to really understand the context or really like what happened between these people we don't know enough and so we meet this character in the middle of a moment when she's really really emotionally upset um rather than getting a baseline and then we get a really beautiful creation myth but it takes up half of the first 10 pages so there's kind of a weird disjointing dis 
there, there's a feeling of these two things not quite connecting, and I wonder if that's just because we only have 10 pages. But it might be easier, prescriptive, feel free to ignore, to start in a scene, even just the scene right before the argument, so we have an idea of what's happening without having to get only the aftermath from it. Yeah, so, so I actually, I, I agree with Kristen about the beginning. You know, as, as you said, you know, we don't quite have enough information about the scene, what's going on to really get into it. And also, so, you know, we get into the story and they're talking about a problem. And, and then later on, you know, there's like this a description after the fact of what happened. And I thought, you know, that was a really exciting scene that she described where her, you know, her previous partner was trying to fight and also kind of trying to pin her against a tree to keep her from fighting. And because of that, you know, there's all this conflict, there's a, there's all this action and, you know, a lot of drama. And I thought, you know, why not just start there? And then that would draw us in and then we would understand more. And also with the creation myth, yes, I, I love the creation myth, but it's very long. And as Kristen said, it's a very big chunk at the beginning that kind of disrupts the flow. So I would suggest considering either breaking it up into pieces or moving it later or... or um, I would probably, if it were my story, I might, I would probably do both. Introduce it little by little. One of the one of the additional issues having it displayed the way it is creates, aside from just uh, keeping the tension going, is that we get it in a very kind of like almost oral history. This is, you know, this is the way it was, and and this is the way like the official accounts retell it. Having it given to the reader that way means we don't get any emotional connections from the people who are living in its aftermath. So it's a lot of, what it comes down to is a lot of telling when instead, and this is where we're getting into prescriptive territory, if you can link it to what's going on with the characters in the moment, we can get what those bits of history mean to the characters we're following. I had the same issues. I felt like I wasn't really connecting to the main character because I didn't understand why she was upset or why it mattered. Mm -hmm. Like the partnership thing kind of threw me because it seems like it's such a big deal to the main character like she needs to be bonded to somebody and I wasn't sure why because it seemed like when she met the new ranger he had never been bonded to anybody and I I came out not really knowing why it was important to be bonded or what it even meant and 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 back to that first scene too like I feel like instead of being shown all of these cool world-building details like devourers that sounds amazing or terrifying or I don't know or like what even rangers do and gifts like she's allowed to be a ranger because she has this gift but I don't know what that means. And so I feel like it's kind of a missed opportunity even to miss that first scene, unless you're making promises about what kind of book this is going to be. If it's not like an action-packed, lots of fighting type of book, then I guess I understand pulling back and having it be about conversations and, and feelings and stuff. But if she's a ranger and she's going to continue fighting and fighting is going to be a big deal, then like that sounds like a great first scene to make really good promises about what the rest of your book is going to be about. That is super prescriptive. We're like going off the rails here. <laughs> but I feel like I feel like I need to push back just a little bit. Okay. And say that that you have to be careful because action scenes as an opening can be done, but it's also tricky. Because oh, absolutely. if it's just fighting and we don't have emotional reasons to connect to the characters, a lot of people are just going to tune it out. So Fight scenes at the beginning of a book need to be about characters and not about mm-hmm. fighting. Like, I use this example all the time. Like, at the beginning of Six of Crows, there is, when we're first introduced to Inej and Kaz, it is a fight scene. Like, Kaz is standing in the middle of this big gang and, like, letting people point guns at him and is making really huge claims about stuff. And Inej is up in the rafters and is about ready to drop it down on people. Like it is a fight scene, but it's not about the fighting. It's about showing who the characters are and what it is that they want and how they act. 
like we find out that Kaz is kind of reckless and makes huge claim huge claims and he doesn't mind if people shove a gun in his face he'll like push his chest up against it and then we know that Inej like that he that she's his spider she's like the background figure that that makes good on all those claims that he makes so it's not about the guns and it's not about people dying it's about showing us who the characters are yeah, getting the story in miniature. Can I piggyback off that for a sec? So in this manuscript, I think my first reactions to her, um, so she's leaning against a tree and um, tears are pricking in her eyes. And then she later on goes and tells her kind of supervisor how the breakup in the partnership went down. And going back and thinking about that, because the way she talks about how her partner, you know, wouldn't let her fight because she was a woman, it seems so so clearly wrong it's a little um, on the nose even but the it's, fact, a little, it's a little yeah. over the top yeah that the fact that she was crying about that <laughs> yeah well the fact that she was crying about that then made me feel that she was insecure or um yeah just very insecure so that's that was kind of how it, the fight scene there reflected on her which if that's what it's supposed to be then that's great but th- those were my feelings it made on that. me it made me wonder how dangerous these devourers actually are if it's possible for a guy to hold his combat capable partner down with one arm and successfully fight them off with his other like how how dangerous can they really be if that's possible okay well i think we are about out of time for this section of the podcast does anyone have any final thoughts they'd like to add i did have one more thing that's probably kind of nitpicky well two things in the very first couple of paragraphs we're introduced to like five people with their names and they're all fantasy names and so they're people I was like oh I have to remember these names and it was a little bit it, it's hard to like absorb that many names for me maybe I'm a bad reader I don't know but I also and this is I'm sorry I'm being so prescriptive this time I feel like all of them were introduced in a way that they like it didn't really matter what their names were like, I could have just known it was her partner or the leader of all of the rangers as a woman without having to remember the names right at the beginning. So it's just something to think about. It, it always helps to introduce characters gradually rather than straight at the beginning. And also, mm-hmm. yeah, you might not need all the names. Another thing that kind of threw me, this is something that Leah mentioned earlier, is a positive thing that because it showed her family dynamic that her sister's weren't talking to her because she had chosen to be a ranger, which is, like, against social norms or something. She said... I could always choose to go back to the domestic life. And it made me wonder if those were the only two choices. She'd either be a ranger or domestic somehow because we're also introduced to other characters who use their gifts and are obviously not like quote-unquote domestic. But then there's like something going on here that's different. But it was also presented as like there's only two options for me. So I I didn't understand how that worked. There's a, 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 not a sage, like the, the lady who bonds them obviously is not a quote-unquote domestic and is using her gift and is okay. Like, there are other options than just those two things. Or maybe I am, like, thinking too hard about it, what it means to be domestic. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, I actually agree with you there. I agree with you. Okay, fantastic. To this author, thank you so much for submitting. This is a fun submission to read. Glad we got to look through it. And Livia, thank you so much for coming on the show. We loved hearing your comments and, and learning from you about beta readers. Well, thank you. This was fun. Our next guest will be Ben Grange, who is an agent at the L. Perkins Agency. Thanks go to Jason Akinaka, who did our sound design for this episode, and also to our intern, Aaron Lee. Heads up, we'll be doing an Instagram challenge in August with a prize of a free 10-page critique from Writer's Clearinghouse. So look out for a post that tells you how to participate. You can listen to this show wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us ratings and reviews, and share with your writer friends. 
If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome or whine about how your writing is going. You can find us on Twitter at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram at Lit Service Podcast. Or you can email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional valuations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>